0: What's up everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process, and on this show I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with Matt Wensing, serial entrepreneur and the, currently the founder of Summit. Matt, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks, Cortland.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. I was reading through uh, some of your tweets recently, and I saw this pattern of you sort of uh, holding, uh, let's say, successful entrepreneurs to uh, a standard of intellectual honesty, as I think the way that you put mm. it. And so there's this tweet you had about Justin, <laughs> a tweet that Justin Kahn had, where he was like, I'm going to tell you why storytelling is all about you know, the only thing you need to start a (laughs) successful startup. And you're like, bro, your story is you went to Yale, you went to YC, you exited a company for like a billion dollars. Of course, investors (laughs) gave you a lot of money. Like that's not a story anybody could tell.
1: I mean, full credit for the first stepping stones of that journey. Like everybody comes in theory from very little, but like by the time you have the billion, maybe the the 400 million you raised (laughs) after that, maybe you should discount that a little bit, you know, just to- Throw a little bone to a few people here. It's an interesting phenomenon
0: because even having a podcast and talking to lots of people, I think, like when you're sitting in the chair and there's an audience listening, you're trying to give advice. Like, you don't want to say, you know what? You can't do what I did. There's no way (laughs) you can do what I did. I had a special (laughs) advantage and that's what it boils down to. Like, you want to be able to, like, share tips and and things that people can actually follow. But that might lead you to say things that, like, sort of ignore your unique advantages.
1: Yeah, we're all guilty of this. I mean, I, I am as well. Um, second time entrepreneur. I came into the second business with advantages. I just want us to somehow acknowledge those. And I realize you can't preface every tweet or statement with this whole preamble that gets very, like it's <laughs> irritating fast, you yes. know, but you know, if if you're gonna, if, I mean, honestly though, it's like the bigger your platform, the the higher your pulpit, like the higher the standard, I feel like it's, uh, at least come back to that now and then, you know?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's it's like a, it's a tricky catch-22 because it's hard enough to like write a tweet or a blog post or, or put out any content that like spreads and shares a message to anybody. Like that in and of itself is hard. Obviously, you get rewarded if you say more extreme things that are a little bit, like, push the envelope or that, like, you know, include really big numbers or say, like, you know, maybe even lie a little bit. Like, those things are easier to spread. But it's super hard to sort of, like, do both. To, like, be extremely honest, put in all those caveats that you're talking about, and also write something that influences a lot of people and, like, affects people the way you want it to.
1: I know. And and the lesson that I have learned is that if you want to be effective in this world, in this business – it's like you said, you have to tell a story. And I believe that people's attention spans, like the amount that they're able to absorb is very, very tight, very small. And so I, I give you an example from my own world. Like I, I've i done some fundraising for my second business. I've mm-hmm. had some good mentors. They've looked at decks that I've created. And there's always that team slide. And when you when you pitch, you think that the team slide is actually supposed to be your list of credentials or your history or what makes you so good at what you do. Mm-hmm. And then you look at some successful team slides from certain people, and it says like three words. You know, it's like PM at Facebook, you know, then I went to IC, and then I got investment from Sequoia. There's like five right. words in their team slide. <laughs> and you're like, what's <laughs> going on here? <laughs> it's like, oh, I see. By team right. slide, you mean like, who are the brands? What are the names that I right. can relate to immediately? And so, like, with my first company, There's this complicated version of the truth, which is how my first business got acquired and merged into DHL, like the big Mm -hmm. global logistics company. But when I tell that story in a slide, like it really has to be distilled down to acquired by DHL. And it's like, that's not actually exactly right. That's not (laughs) true. But like three letters is way more potent than a paragraph, you know? That's that's the reality we're in. So effective or completely thoroughly honest, like, I I don't know, it's tough.
0: It comes down a lot to human psychology, I think, which is the point that you're making is it's hard to communicate something, even a simple idea, it's hard to get across. And often if you relate something to something people already know, then instead of you having to come forth and convince them of a million different things, having to tell like a, a very detailed story to let them know why you're impressive or why your advice matters, they can just sort of like replace that with like, oh, Facebook trusted this guy, I, I trust him. <laughs> it cuts out a lot of the work that you have to do, and suddenly it's just super simple. And like you can do, It's why people describe their startups as like, we are GitHub for XYZ, because then instead of having yeah. to give a whole spiel, you just say like, this thing everybody already knows, but for X.
1: It's the, uh, I like to say stories are the original compression algorithm for trust, right? For facts. It, it compresses all that down to, I mean, a, a brand – and it's now, oh, Cortland's the extension of the Stripe brand. Well, I love Stripe. I I trust Stripe, so I, I trust Cortland, right? And that's a very effective, potent, you know, five-letter word or six, yeah, six-letter word to put on your resume compared right. to, I don't know, an essay on indie hackers podcasting. Yeah,
0: that's very true. But when you think about it, it's kind of depressing because it's like, well, like, it's just yeah. not like, it shouldn't be that convincing, you know? You're just like, like, this shouldn't work.
1: But it does, yeah. Yeah, It does. So so here we are, pragmatic and right. wanting to be honest at the same time.
0: Well, I think you are, I mean, you mentioned you're a serial entrepreneur. You've started two companies. You've come a long way. You've accrued some advantages. Um, yeah. Not to put you on the spot here, but what's something that you as an experienced founder would want to, I guess, relay to beginning founders? Something like, you know, that might typically be uh, a lot of bullshit out there <laughs> that real founders aren't oh. saying to beginning founders that they should hear.
1: Oh, I mean, this, this went across the airwaves recently. There's the whole back and forth about, you know, is it about who you know or is it about um, hustle and hard work and work ethic and all those things? I think the answer is obviously both. And I give you a story from my life. I went to a great brand name school, University of Chicago. Excellent in terms of academia. And I went with a lot of really smart kids there. I met a lot of kids there who actually made me feel stupid, which I think is the hallmark of being in a good <laughs> environment, right. as you know. Like, it's like, wow, I am no longer the smartest person in the room. <laughs> that might have been the case in high school. Definitely not the case anymore. And, um, you know, one mistake I made is I, after graduating college, I had friends that went to Yahoo when Yahoo was cool. I had friends that went to um, Google after Yahoo when Yahoo stopped being cool. Um, I had other friends that applied to y c and and you know all all Silicon Valley and maybe New York a little bit and so they kind of all went to those well known places and I decided to go to a good, respectable company in Chicago. They paid well it was the right choice for my family and then I started my own business and looking back, I think. If you have the opportunity, I do think, just building right off what we just said, if you can go work for a name brand for a few years <laughs> and 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 learn those skills, your life is going to be easier. Because like, I, I think I did that right when it goes to where I went to college. But then sort of after that, the entrepreneurial bug bit me so hard and, and I wanted to do that so much that I, I just started my own thing. And I went straight into like, nobody knows who I am or why they should <laughs> trust me. And and that's like a hard place to start. That's like starting, that's hard, that's ex- That's hard mode, you know? Yeah. And if I had done what my friends did and I had gone to Yahoo for a few years and then onto Asana, I think my life would have been really different. Like, I think it would have been a lot easier <laughs> to go raise that first round of funding or whatever. Why? Because I'd be with other people who are like, oh, I've known Matt since like, 2000, you know, we went to college together. Like, of course I'm going to trust Matt with this angel money or whatever. Instead, I, I really, I built my own business and I learned so much the hard way. But then like communicating that to people was so difficult. Cause I couldn't just say like, Hey, I helped build the newsfeed. No. <laughs> you know? no, you know, you
0: got to write up <laughs> like a thousand word blog post that so people have to read exactly. the whole post. <laughs> if they want to know anything about you.
1: What's funny is I learned like, All the same lessons, maybe even more. But uh, yeah, I kind of feel like I made a mistake. Yeah, I'm in kind of the
0: same boat. I never worked at any sort of big company or any brand name company. I went to a brand name school, which was great. But Mm -hmm. uh, after that, I didn't get any real operating experience. You know, I was not PM at Facebook or anything. Uh, mm-hmm. and so I think I missed out on that. Right? I can't sit here and say like, here's the lessons you learn. Even right now, I technically work at a big company. I can't tell you anything about, Sh- people email me and ask me questions <laughs> about Stripe. Like, I can't tell you, like I'm doing any hackers. I don't want to interface with it at all. I'm like taking away zero yeah. lessons from this experience. <laughs> Let's talk about your, your first business though. Uh, it's called, yeah. Storm. it's called Storm Pills, right?
1: Yeah, storm pulse. And that's right.
0: I I did. I'm one of the few people who did read your five thousand word <laughs> blog posts oh, Wow, <laughs> about yeah. bootstrapping storm pulse. Uh, it's a pretty riveting story. It's very detailed. As I understand it, when you started it, uh, you had kind of humble ambitions. Like you didn't think it was going to be a business. You didn't think you're going to make money from it. And things just sort of you know one thing sort of led to another.
1: That's right. I I wanted to work on something. Web 2.0 was a new thing. Google Maps. Just to put us in framing here, 2000 four. So Google Maps didn't have an API yet. I wanted to work on a startup thing. I was listening to podcasts that I would download onto my white iPod with a wheel on it <laughs> <laughs> and like listen to on the way to work. And it had, you know, I don't even have had a Wi-Fi, Um, and so that was the world is in, but it was so exciting because I listened to this podcast by a fellow and there weren't that many podcasts at all, period. Right. So it was like this recording of a talk, Given by a fellow named Tom Coates, uh, C O A T E S, and he talked about creating a data set that would just become the go-to place for some some domain, some kind of knowledge in on the web. Like this is the opportunity, be the be the destination for this kind of information on the web. And back then, like two thousand four, the web was small enough that like that kind of felt doable. Like oh, I'm going to be the place where people go to for X, and I picked. I picked weather because I had a bit of a background culturally with weather data and information. I was kind of a little, I don't know, geek passion of mine. And really what happened was I went down this rabbit hole and the more I worked with the data, the more excited I got about the product and the technologies, you know, started using Python. A friend of mine introduced me to Python back in 04. It just, it just pulled me in, you know, the creative abilities that I had doing that kind of work. On nights and weekends compared to what i was doing at my desk even though i had a great job like i already said man it was addictive um and i had no idea how i was going to make money though that was that was the fact yeah in
0: your blog post you talk about every year basically the resources you were putting into this company so it's like year one you know put in 300 hours and zero dollars (laughs) total revenue zero dollars year two 600 additional hours zero dollars in revenue year three a <laughs> thousand additional hours zero dollars in revenue it's crazy to think about how many actual years you're working on this thing and like putting in yeah. like blood sweat and tears and not making any money like do you think yeah. that like, what, what was pushing you to do this was it just pure passion
1: i, I think that's right it, it was the it was that loop that feedback loop that you get on as a creator where you build a bit of code you run it what comes back to you is, like, more valuable than what you put in. You know, I, I suddenly right. realized, I was like, I'm creating value. I don't know how to charge for it yet. I don't even know what it's worth to anybody else. But, like, I love this. And and I like to say, like, one way to get way ahead of the market is to fall in love with your product. I and mean, that that's good and bad, right? By falling in love with it, you end up maybe way ahead of where anybody else in the world needs this thing to be. But the f- more I worked on it, the farther I got ahead, and I just realized, okay, this thing's powerful, and I'm gonna figure out how to charge money for it at some point. And then, and then I discovered SaaS eventually.
0: Right. How do you, if, like, okay, let's say you're building a product, and you feel like you love it. You're like, I love this thing. How do you, tell, how do you differentiate between like I actually authentically love this because it's cool versus actually this is just my baby and I built it, and no matter how good or bad it is, I'm gonna feel like I love it because I put so much time and effort into it
1: oh man that's that's good i I mean the litmus test has to be i mean it's obvious other people telling you that i can say that i am a i'm kind of addicted to i mean i'll I'll say it this way because it sounds the way it should i'm kind of addicted to praise i'm addicted to that validation that external validation so when i create stuff i don't keep it to myself that's not natural for me so it's not necessarily that I'm proactive or disciplined about it, but mm-hmm. when I make something, I tend to share it and I share it and I share it. So like the first thing I started to do even when I was doing that was I was sharing what I was working on with my manager at work, with my friends, you know, with my family. And ma- maybe I'm just also lucky that I have some like brutally honest friends and family. <laughs> I think that's really <laughs> important. Like I know the mom test is real, um, so, so I didn't mention my mom in that, but if you tend to surround yourself with people who can shoot straight with you, like, and you like to share what you're working on, like that's a good recipe. I think I had that. And so I was able to show people what I was working on. They're like, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty cool. And I also knew that what I was building was unique. There wasn't anything else on the internet like this so that if I did succeed at it, it would be the only thing of its kind. And I'm like, you know, that that seems pretty valuable, <laughs> even though I need to figure out how to make money.
0: So what was it exactly? Like this this talk that you yeah. listened to was basically like you need to be a destination on the internet for a particular thing. You chose weather. What specific aspect of weather? Like why would anyone come to Stormpulse?
1: Yeah. So in in 04 as well, it was one of the most active hurricane seasons in history. So we had all these hurricanes that hit Florida, which is where I'm from, and I was looking on the internet for information about these storms because my family was still back in Florida. I was living in Chicago, working in Chicago. And I said, this is kind of crazy. We have the internet, the web, which has these great tools. But when it comes to weather information, which is this life or death stuff, you're stuck going on these websites that are loaded with ads. And there's a dude standing in front of a map, waving his hands. It's like a recording (laughs) of a, a it's like a recording of a TV, like, um, spot that they're putting in like this embedded i'm like what it was just it was so bad that i said okay i'm gonna be this pure clean high fidelity get your facts on the weather like 538 if people know that reference for weather or you know something that was more grounded in facts and numbers and measurements and give me the data fast without the advertising that was what i was building and you know that's a public service that's offered by the government that that's their mission but they got a lot of things to do. <laughs> and so it ends up being it ends up being good in terms of the data quality but then it ends up being really poor in terms of the delivery. You know, so you're on weather.gov and you're going, why is weather.gov the ugliest, like most old fashioned looking (laughs) website on the internet, like at the time? And it's like, well, those, those people are scientists. Like they're, they're trying to interpret the weather and figure stuff out. They're not building Google maps or something like that. So I said, what if I brought 2004 era technology (laughs) (laughs) to data that they've been harvesting since the fifties, you know, like- Maybe we can pull this into the this 21st century here. Um, that was the idea with the caveat that, of course, the Weather Channel and these big big guys, mm-hmm. they're doing that. But they've got a profit motive that is very much attached to hype and page views and banner ads and all that stuff that is pretty harmful when you're trying to use that information to make a life or death decision. Like, this is not just, hey, this pop-up's in my way. It's like, I want to see <laughs> if, like, this tornado is heading to my my house or place of business like now is not the time for a pop-up <laughs> right <laughs> yeah
0: so what did your your uh, your friends think you told me that you had some like critical friends people kept it real with you you show them this thing you're dumping hours into it sure on one hand you don't have pop-up ads but on the other hand you're not making any money
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um in the earliest days i think only two people really gave me full credit one was my co-founder in that business um, brad Uh, And the other one was my, you know, very uh, faithful and supportive uh, partner in life, um, Sky. And, you know, those were really good balancing factors in my life where Brad's like, hey, I'm going to put in $40,000 of my own money. That was his original investment. He lent it to me so I could work on this product for a while. And he was actually my manager at the first company. So he's putting real skin in the game. He's my first angel investor before I even knew what an angel investor was and he was kind of holding it out there and saying keep building this amazing product and we need to figure out then how to make money off of it um and then my wife was re- really fantastic because it was like i finally built an amazing product by 2006 the product was pretty awesome but then it was like okay who's using it it's like well like 18 people used it today <laughs> <laughs> it's like so you we gave up the job as a software developer to work on a product that's being used by 18 people. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, like <laughs> and it's like, yeah. So, you know, those are good voices to mm-hmm. wrestle with instead of just geeking out by myself. Such a good lesson
0: there and that your co-founder was your manager because you have this loop where you're going through where you're naturally motivated to talk about what you're building, which a lot of people aren't. Like, I'm not one of those people. I'll build stuff in secret and quiet and no one will know about it for years. Um, but mm-hmm. if you're the opposite kind of way you are people learn about it and then some of those people might help you and they would never help you or join as your co-founder or fund your business or do any of the good stuff if you weren't talking about it what was the the turning point with storm posts or were there multiple turning <sighs> points because i remember reading about like a widget that you that you launched
1: that was super yeah good. yep yep there were multiple turning points i'll i'll summarize the two one was we uh, needed distribution badly. And I just tweeted about distribution today. So this is funny because I'm a strong believer the product comes first. But then once you have that, the 18 people doesn't get you where you need to be. <laughs> so so you need that distribution. And um, we weren't making any money. We also didn't have distribution. We were languishing in obscurity, as some have said. I think it's a Paul Grahamism. And I went and got a job at a newspaper called the Palm Beach Post, which is the big metro newspaper in our area. And I became a full-time developer in their newsroom. What was neat about that, very, very serendipitous was they had terrible weather data and information. And here I was working for them at this new day job because we didn't have, I didn't have any income anymore from the, from the start. Or we, I burned through that whopping $40,000. Um, and I ended up figuring out how to, um, it wasn't that hard. It wasn't like an enterprise sale, but it's like, Hey, would you be willing to embed our weather maps into your website? and that's what they did so we ended up going viral in terms of being embedded in other websites in 2008 Um, and we started doubling traffic every day we ended up with millions of visitors we were on cnn uh, usa today um it was pretty cool It was ama- amazing. The White House ended up using us, um which is kind of a crazy footnote we, we when I so when I said we went viral, I was like, okay, I could wear a t- shirt with storm pulse on it at the airport, <laughs> and somebody would be like, I love that site <laughs> which, which which was which is crazy. and so very, very lucky. The timing worked out, my job worked out. I was on the inside. We got distribution, but we now were this weird fact of like, yeah, we have four million visitors. we're still not making. Any money, really? We 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 did end up making about one hundred twenty thousand dollars that year. I think two hundred thousand is the most we made, which allowed us to pay off some debts, credit card debts, pay ourselves, you know, a very modest developer income each, and and yet we were still very far away from like making making millions of dollars. And right, um, that was the next thing. So the so the next turning point was later, probably two thousand eleven. We were actually thinking of shutting down the company, not shutting down the company, maybe selling it because. We felt like we had taken as far as we could. And we also tried to raise venture capital uh, at the time. And, you know, VCs were willing to listen because we had millions of visitors, but the business model was so unknown and it was so hard for them to get their heads around. Like, you're gonna charge money for a weather app? Like, that doesn't really make sense. Like, who does that? Uh, Weather's free. Like, so they didn't believe in the business model. So we made this crazy decision to go from freemium and I would say poorly implemented freemium (laughs) to essentially paid only. Wow. And we had, we still had a free plan, but it was like incredibly cripplingly basic and we made a lot of people really mad out of those millions of people that wanted the product still. But we basically said, look, we, we don't have much of a choice here. Of course, they didn't know that. We couldn't present weakness to the world and say, like, right. you guys don't understand, like, we're broke. We don't have healthcare. <laughs> like, we, we have to do something. So we just said, hey, we're rolling out, like, a paid-only plan. And, man, I had people calling me because we had, like, a 1-800 number that was, like, a grasshopper number on the website. It just went to my cell phone. You know, they didn't know that. So, like, I'm taking my kids to swimming lessons. We're not making any money and have people chewing me out saying like your management is so greedy it's these big cats blah blah just like shredding <laughs> us to pieces and i'm like i can't say like uh ma'am you know like i'm actually like one of two people that works <laughs> on, this, <laughs> on this app that you've been using for free for years and we just need to make money now so i'm sorry but it was crazy we, we went from making a couple thousand dollars a month uh on our slow months and maybe $10,000 in our busy months, 20,000 to, I remember we turned, we turned that paywall on and it was April of 2000, I want to say 11. I really pulled a lot of all-nighters to get that paywall up because hurricane season starts in June and we're like, we got to do this now. So we did that and we made like 15 grand, I think in April, then 30, then 50, then 70. And I think we made as a two person company, we made about half a million dollars that first year. Wow. Where we said we're we're going to charge for this thing. And so okay, now we're now we're a real SaaS business, you know, with thousands of customers who are paying us. And why did it take so long? I don't know, but it was it was brutal, man.
0: That <laughs> that um experience of people assuming you're much bigger than you really are. I had a lot of that too starting companies in like the the 2000s. Yeah. And I think back then yeah. it just wasn't it just wasn't very popular to present yourself as like a face and a name. And to be very human and personal about it. like nowadays, almost everybody does that because it's like there's yeah. nothing but advantages. It inspires empathy in your customers and other people when they realize like you're an actual person. But when people yeah. just see you as this faceless corporation, it's almost like your hard work works against you because like it's like your website's too polished. Now everyone hates you. <laughs> everyone <laughs> thinks you're an asshole. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like, I have a FedEx logo on my website because without permission, I put that logo on there. They think it's there because I've got like this enterprise sales team and I'm like (laughs) making millions of dollars. (laughs) And it was a catch 22 because we wanted large companies to trust us. Like we knew that uh, a lot of our users that we wanted to charge money to, some of our first customers were FedEx, US Steel, Humana Healthcare, like giant multi-billion dollar companies where we couldn't say we were just two guys and a couple servers in AWS. We had to present big. But then those millions of users who really, really loved us, they just didn't know what to think. Like, they thought we sold out completely. And, you know, we, we sort of did. But we also right. had to. It makes yeah.
0: sense. Because you're trying to be two different things to different groups of people. And you had to kind of just decide, this is who we are. This is who we're targeting. We're going to yeah. keep this face yeah. of being this big corporation. But we're going to sell to people who actually like that rather than people who don't. Yep. What do you think about, I think it's kind of fascinating that you had these huge customers. I mean, like, these aren't small names and you still were just like a two, three person shop or something. Um, do you think that comes down to that original video you watched that said be the destination for something on the internet? Like, do you think you really had something that was
1: super unique that these companies couldn't have gotten anywhere else? I think so. And, and it sounds very proud now, but if you consider that we spent five years working on this thing, making almost no money, it's like, okay, if I if I spent... Ten thousand hours trying to be the destination for X, you probably will become the destination for X, and so we did. We did have that. Like I, I remember, years and years later, two thousand, I to say two thousand fourteen, uh, we got a we got an inbound lead from Anheuser Busch in St. Louis, like headquarters, and we're like, "How'd you hear about us?" And they're like, "Well, uh, somebody in one of our departments uh, heard that we were looking for a weather solution, and." They stood up sort of proverbial. stood up in their cubicle and said, "Hey, I, I used to use this site called stormpulse.com." <laughs> and it's like it was where I went for everything until they locked me out and made it paid only. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but now with the corporate card, we have money. Right. <laughs> so we, should, we could probably sign up for the the enterprise edition of that. And so I think what we actually ended up benefiting from was the early version of like bring that product to work where whether is this consumer thing Everybody everybody knows somebody in their family that like is a weather geek usually, like there's probably somebody. And then at work, people started having, you know, eventually, you know, we survived long enough that eventually somebody's got like this weather problem. And they're like, oh yeah, I, I used to love that site. Like I wonder if they're still around. And that that trust that they had in their personal life kind of got us in the door on the enterprise side.
0: So again, clue me into this weather geekery phenomenon, because I actually don't have anyone in my family who's a weather <laughs> geek. What does it mean to be a weather geek? What does that even look uh, like?
1: This is so this is so it's this is classic. So I've also observed that like parts of the United States shard pretty sharply on this dimension. Like if you're east of the Mississippi and maybe like if you're east of the Mississippi, much more likely that you deal with weather in some kind of severe basis. Like a whole lot of people, sadly, a week this week, like were killed in tornadoes in kentucky like and that affected thousands of people it's all over the airwaves a lot of other people didn't even know that happened and so didn't a lot of a our thing. customers yeah you didn't hear a thing but like it actually killed more people than than hurricanes and and you know a lot of other crazy events so they're digging through the rubble and it's it's tragic and so i think i grew up in florida culturally southeast united states very weather exposed and where the weather affected everything east sort of the mississippi frankly east of the colorado rockies is where stuff just gets crazy. Um, and so we were sort of niche in that sense. Like we we got our roots and we got started with companies and people that kind of lived weather, year in and year out, day in and day out. And so in these parts, maybe um, more so. Now, when we did go enterprise and we did go more international, talking to folks in California about earthquakes, wildfires, um, floods tsunamis so we we ended up broadening out into all kinds of natural disasters and we basically learned that yeah where you are in the world you're attuned to different things so if i talk talking about wildfires you're like oh okay i i, I know someone probably who's yeah. dealt with that yeah that's right cool that makes a lot of sense
0: i'm on the west coast and so it is like wildfires and i'm in seattle mm-hmm. so it's basically just like gray gloomy
1: Cloudy, <laughs> cloudy skies. Yeah, there's a, there's a few folks who've who've insulated themselves from Mother Nature somehow, and you're you're like in this you're in this cold, wet blanket. People in San Diego are in this like cocoon of just dry, seventy two degree air. Nice. <laughs> the rest of the world, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. So eventually, uh, what happened with
0: StormPost? You sold it?
1: Yeah, so we we ended up selling it. Um, it was renamed at one point uh, to Risk Pulse because we broadened it beyond weather, and oh, we right. were We were acquired uh, through a combination of private equity and um, DHL, who I mentioned earlier. So DHL, uh, very interested in, well, logistics is their business. We ended up going so far up market that um, Patrick McKenzie is well known for his charge more mantra. He was an early investor in Storm Pulse, and he was one of the influencers on us raising our prices. So we went from four bucks a month to 40 bucks a month. You know our largest deals. By the time we sold the business, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars per month to very large businesses to do what? Basically, predict how the weather is going to affect shipments. So you think about you know three PLs, logistics, um, supply chains, cargo containers and vessels, Mother Nature wreaking havoc. Well, with all of that, we ended up realizing that wow, you know people who are managing complex supply chains around the world. They've got to keep track of this stuff because it affects their, affects their business. You know, that's what they do for a living. So we were acquired through a combination of private equity and DHL to become a risk analytics business uh, that would track and monitor essentially all these shipments all over the world. So that's what happened. And, that's and I left in 2019.
0: That's so different <laughs> than where you started. I mean, it's the same, oh. it's the same sort of well, right? It's weather. But you started yeah. off like I'm going to make the coolest 2004 version of a weather site anyone's ever seen and then later on yeah. you're doing
1: this like custom service for huge companies helping
0: them like predict the weather. That's it, crazy. It was.
1: It was and and I really feel like it was multiple companies in a sense. It was, you know, B2C originally and then ultimately B2B enterprise SaaS where I'm traveling around the country closing large deals and talking about things the way that a consultant does and right. that was that was where we ended up. <laughs>
0: There's uh, a talk I gave in Microconf uh, a few years back, and I like put all these colorful slides on there. And one of the ideas I had was that like you know if you imagine that you're panning for gold, or you're digging for gold. Um, not that anybody actually does this. You can dig like little shallow <laughs> holes, right? You know, go somewhere, dig a foot, you don't see any goals, move move somewhere else, or you could dig a really deep hole. And the deeper you go the more interesting things you uncover. And I think it's very similar mm. with like business ideas. Like You stick in one particular area. If you had spent those 15 years hopping around and server let me try a little bit about the weather. Oh, that didn't work after six months. Let me try something in games. Oh, that didn't work after six months. Let me try something in productivity software. Like You probably wouldn't have found anything. But because you went so deep into weather, <laughs> and deeper and deeper and, deeper, and <laughs> deeper, you eventually ended up with this cool niche where you're like providing this like, super expensive service to customers that you never could have thought of from day one, yeah. and nobody would have trusted you. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, to, to like put a fine point on the super niche part, you know, we were working with Unilever to talk about at what temperature does Hellman's mayonnaise freeze and after how long, <laughs> you know, so that they could ship it from Chicago to Los Angeles. And you're like, wait, yeah. there's there's money in that? It's like, yeah, but to be the guy that people call to talk about that, you have to spend like a decade just obsessing over these completely absurd things. But, you know, as they say, there's riches in the niches. And so- yep that was a valuable thing to be and then it turns out like is cpg small like no actually cpg is is freaking huge (laughs) it's just you know you don't realize that like to to penetrate that market to be in that market you have to be like the expert at this tiny piece of it like I'm the guy that helps make sure that it's thermally protected when it's in transit. You're like, that's a job. It's like, (laughs) yeah. Like, do you know how much of that stuff people sell every day? Like, of course that's a job. Like there's a job just making sure it gets on the shelf. So,
0: yeah. So I assume that you, uh, that that made you wealthy or made you pretty well off after you had that exit. But did you like being that guy? Like when you, when you set up shop to start your second business, are you thinking like, I can't wait to be the mayonnaise freezing temperature guy again you know i want to, like what are your goals going from business 1 to business 2
1: yeah after 7 years let's say cuz we weren't enterprise at first but i did enterprise sales for basically from 2012 to 2019 maybe 2014 2019 so after 5 years of enterprise sales i was pretty burned out on enterprise sales and i did not want to do any more travel I'm raising a family traveling to do sales pitches and presentations Sure, meeting interesting people, doing things I would never do otherwise. There were some really awesome experiences from that. But I realized that sales is one of those things that I was I was good at. I mean, I was getting seven figure contracts done. Um, now I was on team, so I'm not gonna take all the credit, but like I was leading deals that were very, very large and and it was working. And I learned to appreciate sales and be good at it because I had to. But no, when I started the second business, I said I want to build a product business and see if I can keep it, <laughs> keep it a product business, like, you know, look looking with envy at people who are building tools that, um, you know, are product led. So that was my, that was my goal for the second business is to be product led and stick to that somehow.
0: Why even start a second business? I mean, if you are at a point in your life where like you got money, you've had a success under your belt. You could do anything, you know, you can go write a book, take a break. Yeah. <laughs> why start, why be a startup founder again? It's not easy.
1: I considered those things and I, yeah, why? I, I think, I, I think I've been diagnosed by my family as being, as you said, a serial entrepreneur. And I don't think, I, I, I don't, I, <laughs> I don't want to brand myself in a bad way. If I were an employee again, I would have to be in a very entrepreneurial role within that company. And so, yes, those exist. Every once in a while, some Series A or Series B or whatever founder will find me on the internet and say, "Hey, Matt, <laughs> like I'm looking for an entrepreneurial kind of person to lead this or do that." And so, I considered maybe now I should do what I didn't do in the first place and go join some fast scaling startup. I don't have to be the guy that carries the load or the gal that carries the load anymore. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, I don't have to fundraise and do this stuff. Just I've got stock. I'm killing it, contributing, got, you know, this, like, I considered a few of those roles and it was so tempting, but, <laughs> but like I had another idea and I, I just started testing that idea, validating the idea. And I was like, oh, great. You know, here we go again. Like, I feel like this idea, it's time is now and <laughs> I'm the guy to work on it, so okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> so here we go. I, I Here we go. And and I did do a couple of things. Like I, I decided I was not going to spend my personal savings on this second business. Like it was not fair to my family or me to like take the winnings in the last business and immediately plow them into the new thing and say like, let's double or nothing. Like, no, I'm not doing double or nothing. We are doing, let's try this out. You know, we're going to sell equity to bankroll it. And I'm going to sacrifice some income because I'm not going to, be able to pay myself well for a while, but I'm not going to go double or nothing and be the like primary investor in this business. Um, also having experience with SaaS, knowing that, sure, you go double or nothing thinking that you just need to give yourself X. You actually need 2X, 3X, right. <laughs> you know, 4X, and now you're way, way over. And I didn't want that. I wanted to do something that was less stress and kind of fun. You know, a, a less stressed approach financially.
0: It makes a lot of sense. I mean, you have a, a tweet here about things you're not doing at your second startup. And a lot of the things <laughs> you're not doing are like super stressful things. Like you're not hiring fast. You're not chasing higher valuations. You're not doing enterprise sales, yeah. and hunting for whales. Uh, not having co-founders. That's an interesting one. Because one might argue mm. that having co-founders makes your job easier. Uh, it makes you accountable to somebody, yes, but it also sort of spreads the load, shares a burden across multiple
1: shoulders. I think it does at first and then i think if it takes twice as long or three times as long as you think now your your carrot is just so much smaller you know and then then the stress is different it's not like the amount of work you had to do it's the the reward that i get for this work is now half as much a third as much i was actually more worried about that stress because of how long the first company took the the carrot is too small now stress versus if I find Heroku and I learn some of this and some of that, like maybe I don't need a CTO. You know, that was the idea: is that you know I could use tools to carry the load and build in the shoulders of giants, and then keep the carrot big. That was the goal.
0: Makes a lot of sense. I also followed a similar path uh, path of doing things on my own. Although I brought on my brother as sort of a late co-founder, which has been great. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's uh, I think another sort of underrated or underappreciated aspect is that when things are going well, it's very easy to get along with the co-founders. <laughs> if things are going poorly, <laughs> it's very yeah. easy to look for blame or to try to figure things out. And I think that commonly cr- creates sort of strife and disagreement between co-founders. It going to be very difficult. So not only is your share yeah. of the pie smaller because it's dragging on, but you're also potentially fight- fighting with somebody else. And that's not great. Yeah,
1: And I want to, you know, asterisk cross next to that. Have partners, have, have co-workers, have teammates, have advisors. Like if you if you're good at assimilating and integrating... Constructive feedback from people. You know, hire people, but don't mistake your first hires for a co-founder because those aren't the same thing. Like that's a lesson I learned.
0: Another couple things you put on your list: Uh, you're not accepting speculative meetings. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're valuing this one's sort of tricky because you have two. You're sort of valuing things in certain orders. You're not valuing talent over values, nor are you valuing potential over talent. And so, you're basically (laughs) saying. Values come first and then talent and then potential.
1: Yeah. I I think so. I the, the I'm flexible. I don't want this to be religion. Part of that is the stage that I'm at. It's I'm very early stage. We have three and a half, like I say we round up or four people now at this company. Potential is awesome if you have the resources to nurture people and grow people and and take it you know, yield the fruits of that potential. If you're this early, you need people who are going to contribute immediately, not need a lot of development and you're doing them a disservice to bring them on as a junior person when you need a senior level skill set. So for now at least, not that. Um, and then the values over values over uh, talent. I think that's pretty straightforward. it's you know, I've hired mercenaries before just do so very carefully. you know it's like the it's like the Phil Jackson quote like "You can have a Dennis Rodman." But you can only have one, right? (laughs) So like if you need rebounds, you know, do what you got to do. But like if you start filling your company with those, it's not going to work out. You know, you got to be very, very careful to to bending these rules.
0: I think my favorite thing on this list that you have is your rewarding results over process, which I think I've talked about on the show before, but it's like a big part of how I've changed my life in the last Mm -hmm. few years, which is to care much more about sort of what I'm doing day to day and how I'm doing things. Rather than whether or not I hit some particular goal or got some pot of gold at the end of the rainbow.
1: Yeah. In the, I think sales cultures historically or traditionally, maybe stereotypically, are results over process. I, th- I think I'll, that's where a lot of them fall, the mediocre ones. And I mean, Risk Pulse went through those phases, Storm Pulse, where it's like, did we get this deal closed? Did we move it through the pipeline, et cetera? And it doesn't scale very well like the problem is you end up with this situation where you have a bunch of heroes who are like delivering results whatever it takes however it takes like burning the midnight oil whatever and like it's this hero culture right whereas i think process culture is hey man i i i did my part i contributed i moved the thing from here to there in the end we didn't get the result we wanted but you know we called the play i ran my <laughs> i ran my route I didn't catch the ball, but like there's a good re- but we should call the same play the next time. Like it doesn't mean that we called the wrong play. And what's nice is you shed a lot of blame then as well because as managers, you're building a company, right? And so if you just blame individuals for not delivering results, you're missing process improvements and I think, you know, this is not the dream, but think about when the process gets good enough, the people you can hire, you can start to bend that other rule of like Hey, we can hire somebody who's more junior, put them in this role with a really, really well-defined process, and they're still going to be able to deliver the results we want most of the time. Like that's a scalable company. Um, and it's a mindset shift for sure, and it still comes up to this day like we we botched a a, a deployment was botched in the last couple months. And I looked at the process and I'm like, this is my fault. Like I'm the one who decided that we were going to do this late in the day. I'm the one who decided that we were going to do it without the clear communication we need. Like the process was just bad. And I can sit here and blame the person who shipped a bug, but like the process is bad. So like, even if we, even if we trot that out and do that ceremony where we blame the person for doing this, like we haven't gotten better, you know, Um, literally we're just going to, probably have the same mistake rate going forward so we haven't made progress
0: yeah i think you need to be sort of focused on the process itself if you want to lock in those wins and make it so you can continually make those wins and for That's me right. personally i think the best thing about process over goals is more just like the sort of mental health happiness part of it mm. because if you have a startup like you're gonna like sometimes like things are gonna go poorly like just it's just gonna happen but if you've set up the process like your day-to-day working style or your your system such that like you can actually enjoy them and the process is kind of the point. Then, like you can mm. still be happy even when you're not hitting your goals, and like, I think right. that's pretty crucial because, like, the happiness at the end of the rainbow, like, it doesn't last that long, right? Like, you sold yeah. storm poles. You're probably not doing a little dance every day when you woke <laughs> when you wake up about selling storm poles. <laughs> it's a couple years ago. You're already over it, you know. Yeah, but the process yeah. of like running that business was 15 years. The process of running Summit right now is going to be years.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think we we could learn a lot more from sports than we let on. Like, what do those people do? they're process monsters you know it's like you miss all these shots you miss all these you know all these strikeouts all these things those people that's like i'm gonna swing the same way you know a hundred times and i'm still gonna be like maybe mvp of the world series because i just stick to the process like that's incredible but anyway it's a whole cultural thing i I think there's there's so much to learn from that and i'm trying to get better at that this time around for sure um well, startups are scarier
0: you know you don't get a hundred you don't get a hundred at bats as a startup founder <laughs> you know you <laughs> get like true. a handful in your life <laughs> <and> you
1: <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's fair that's fair um but you know as as eric reese and steve blank and a bunch of other people have shown us like boy there's a whole lot more we could be doing on the yeah. process side so. yeah a lot more
0: yeah so so tell me about like a summit here you come up with this idea you're like the world needs this uh, what was the idea and how did you get started with it?
1: Yeah, so I was building that last company and somewhere around 2014, we started getting those big enterprise contracts. We needed money. We needed some venture capital to uh, hire salespeople to go after those big deals. And we knew that, man, these deals take three to three months, four months to close. That means we need to figure out really, like how much money do we need to scale this business that we think we figured out. And I remember building, uh, I wasn't building financial models. I remember looking at financial models that were being built by others in the team. And then I would be in these investor meetings and I'd pitch and say like, yeah, we need this money to go after this market, this enterprise market, these Anheuser-Buschers of the world. And I want to hire an enterprise salespeople. And we know that, you know, those people take time to pay off. And mm-hmm. They're like, great, that sounds good. One question, like if the sales cycles go from 90 days to like six months, let's just say. How would that change the amount of money you need? I was like, you know, that's, mm. a, that's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> let me get back to you and, and let you know. And I, I remember going back to the team that built these models and they told me like, we, there, there's no like cell in the spreadsheet where we can just change it from like 90 days to 180 days and then everything just updates automatically. Like, every column has to be shifted. Everything has to be thought through. Like, we have to basically rebuild this entire model to anchor off of a different assumption from a sales cycle's length standpoint. I was like, what? Like, no, that, that's not how software works. Like, software work. Like, you just change one thing and, like, everything just automatically <laughs> updates. So like, yeah, but this is, this is this Excel sheet that we built. Like, that's not how it works. Like, wow. So, I had that, I thought, in 2014. I remember just for fun, building some Python scripts that did play around with these kinds of things. And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I shelved that idea in 2014, 2015 and said, hey, if I ever work on another thing, that's going to be one of the, the ideas that I consider. Is like, that's insane that you can't just quickly answer that question. And then 2019 comes along and I'm looking for the next thing to work on. And I asked a couple friends of mine, um, so uh, Nick and Stelly over at Close.com, I was like, okay, you guys know sales cycles lengths really well. You guys know sales. You guys know startups. If I were to tell you that I wanted to model, like, how this would change things, is there a, is there a product for that? I'm like, no, no, we've never seen anything like that. Like, there's no, there's no Carta for financial models um, where you can just manage this thing outside of a spreadsheet. It's like, what? It's like, okay, this is exciting. <laughs> like, this is, this could still be a thing. And like, good thing I didn't start around in 2014 because <laughs> I would have spent like five years still waiting for anybody else to care about this idea. Right.
0: Um, Why do you think now's the time? Like what made what made 2019 different than 2014 in terms of people caring about
1: modeling this stuff? So it became, a couple things happened. One is financial data started to move into APIs, you know, the cloud, as the, as the consultants say, where you can just go get your Stripe data. You can go get your bank account information through Plaid. Um, Kodat now has accounting data that you can just download and suck up. And so I had this idea of like, okay, the data is now available. It's not locked in some file on a desktop. Um, and, you know, interfaces are getting powerful enough. Like G Sheets is mature. There should be a way to do this in a more um, web-centric fashion. And then I look at something like Figma. And I'm like, wow, Figma is like a great example where you're now moving a desktop app level, you know, interface and processing power into the into the browser. So we should be able to build something that does this in the browser now. Um, let's give it a shot. And I spent probably three or six months sort of validating the idea with some prototypes and ideas and wireframes that I bounced around with some founders that I had met, uh, mostly at the Business Software Conference, which is a great conference. Um, so I met folks there, shared the idea with them, said, hey, is this a problem that you deal with? They all said, you know, a lot of them said yes. And kind of like the last time, then I started just working on a product that i was gonna love like (laughs) can can i build something that i love
0: how do you that validation process is so tricky because i think there's Mm. a pool in both directions number one there's a pool of like oh my god i'm so excited about this idea i want to just start building it and if you weren't excited about it you wouldn't put in all this work to validate it so you already have that excitement from day one but then on the other hand there's like oh i should validate this idea and i should go through the entire sort of correct process of validating i should use the mom test i should ask people what they're already using i should do surveys and all sorts of stuff so i don't waste time but you could be doing that for literally years and so how did you decide that like okay six months is the right amount of time before i dive into this headfirst
1: yeah i i did a lot of socializing of the idea floated it sort of just started collecting thoughts from people of like oh yeah that's a problem but actually this kind of put that all to a big you know sort of mental cauldron if you will kept stirring kept stirring and then i'm a builder so i didn't build like the version of my dreams i i didn't build mock-ups though really i built i did build workable prototypes but i didn't care at all about what it looked like how crappy it was from a ui standpoint like i did the first version was like bootstrap for the ui you know uh charts js for the charts Like, i didn't care about any of that, all I cared about was like, hey, if I gave you a thing where you could put in some numbers and hit a button, is that cool? Is that useful? And like, you know, Nick and a few others said, ooh, this is cool. This is cool. I'd like this. And that just started me on the loop of like, okay, what do you like about it? Why? And I would basically pursue that until I hit a wall. And I hit a wall a few times and I had to kind of backtrack to get to where we are today. But I'm a big fan of Especially in such a big market, I think one lesson I learned was like, try to do a breadth first search, meaning like, just test this, test this, test this, go in a full circle. It's just like spiraling, 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 where, you know, you test and then circle, test and then circle. I, I think I did that for six months, mostly because by the time I got six months into it, I knew I could charge something for this version that I have. And I started to do that. And then I started to just get some pull from the market, like people going, okay, this is fun. I like this. I've never called a financial app fun before. (laughs) So, you know, this is cool. And I'd I'd probably pay 50 bucks a month if you added, you know, a QuickBooks integration or something. Um, So it just, yeah, it just started to uh, snowball. And uh, I also wrote a bunch of essays on Medium that were um, financially related, kind of financial modeling centric, just to try to see if i could become known as somebody who knew this space well right and get feedback just from people who maybe they just asked me questions about financials because i wasn't a fi- i'm not a cfo i'm not a f- fintech guy by trade like that was my background i was a ceo and i dealt with financials but i kind of had to steep myself in this new role of okay i need to know the financial market really really well which included experimenting with things like stripe and plaid and everything else to become an expert
0: So you mentioned hitting, like, a lot of these walls, these blocks, and then having to sort of Mm. back up and figure out what to do next. I think uh, probably safe to say that's, like, most founders' experience, that they hit some sort of wall. Like, most businesses don't work out, at least in my experience. Um, But what most people also don't do is, like, learn how to back up and then take another path. And that's something that you've done at least a couple times with Summit. So walk me through, like, what, what does it look like to realize that what you're doing is not working and then successfully figure out a different path for it
1: yeah maybe two ways to split this like one is is the product is the technology working like there's there's that part of how much technical debt can you absorb can i add this next feature without going bankrupt sort of technology from a technology standpoint those a lot of your listeners probably know when they're getting there and i think a little bit of technical debt is perfectly fine because the goal is not to build something without that to start like that's premature optimization um, i got there a few times had to refactor But where I really hit a wall is you don't want to – the walls that I'm talking about, they're they're good walls. They're the kind when you say, wow, okay, the market, the customer, the prospect is asking me to do one more thing. And I want to be able to serve them that. I want to do that because, like, this is the customer I want to serve. This is the use case I want to tackle. But the current product can't do that. Like, it's not – why? It's not designed for that and i think the real question is knowing okay it wasn't designed for that because i didn't expect this to be where i would end up like okay it's really popular i wasn't expecting to end up here when i designed it in the first place you know you're asking me for things that i did not incorporate into my initial design that is a definitely a fork in the road and i'm not saying it's always right to go back to the drawing board Mm -hmm. but you you can develop your sort of spidey sense about, okay, what am I hearing? And is it in common enough? And going back to the drawing board is like a really, it's a bigger bet, right? So maybe, okay, I can satisfy this need manually. I can write the report. I can do this thing. I can do that thing. And I don't have to go back to the drawing board. I can just add incrementally more effort or features to this product right. and satisfy that demand. But if you hear enough of that, <laughs> and and that's, common across all of these customers then do you really want to build a business on top of like duct tape and, <laughs> and band-aids like what you're basically what congratulations right you've sort of learned what you should have known in the first place and now that you know that let go of what you built if you can if you can afford to i know it's luxury but mm-hmm. i usually did this after fundraises. i would raise money based off the traction and progress which i've done a couple times for summit um and then right after raising money, I would sort of take stock, stop and say, is this the foundation for the next phase? Because I just learned a bunch of stuff. We've got some traction. If I keep going forward, this is the foundation. Right. I'm baking that in. I'm locking that in. If I If I burn it down now, if I tear it down now, I can rebuild it as if I knew that in the first place. And now my foundation is clean. Like it's ready for more learning like every time you learn something you kind of pollute or you have to adjust your plans and i feel like one way to reward yourself say if i get traction if i get this far the market responds knowing when to resist the temptation to keep going and instead say okay stop you know we the market's responding in a way we didn't expect we built the band-aid version the one-off version let's rebuild that now because that's actually the new foundation we want to build on and again that's a luxury there's no easy answer because like if you if you don't have the time to stop and rebuild you don't you know there's no way around it but i was lucky enough with summit to have those opportunities
0: so it's sort of sorry investors i know you invested in this one thing last week (laughs) (laughs) now that i have all the money i need to feel safe and secure i'm doing a completely different thing and starting to scratch
1: yeah, I mean, I, I did. I mean, I'll be. perfectly honest. I've done that. I've done that three three times now. Three times. And How do your
0: investors feel about about it when you tell them?
1: The super. I mean, super supportive. Frankly, because they're early stage investors, and they're like, "We bet on you, Matt. Like, we believe in you." And if what you're telling me is that the current product isn't going to get us to where we want to go, like you know this better than we do, we trust you. You know, and I, just to characterize. Like the first version, I couldn't add features fast enough. It was, it needed to be rebuilt, so I did. The second version was a little bit trickier to diagnose because it was working. I was making money, people were signing up, but they were also canceling. And then my best customers were asking me to essentially perform services for them. <laughs> like I would tell my wife like, hey, I gotta work tonight. Like this this customer of our, of mine like needs this report, which isn't a feature yet. So I'm gonna like sit there, hack on the database a little bit, generate this data, send it to them via email. I'm like, what is, what is going on here? Like, what are they really asking for? And in theory, we could have built a decent SaaS on top of that model, but it would have required scaling headcount significantly to deliver those services enterprise deals to justify that time that was being invested right and it would take me down the path that we talked about earlier like that's not the kind of business i wanted to build right right (laughs) so it's like sorry i i can't i cannot build this i'm not the guy for this so what can i build instead yeah that's i mean
0: it's scary because it's a huge decision to have to make right like okay you see a path to make money. Maybe there's reasons not to go down that path. Maybe it's hard. Maybe it's sloppy. Maybe your business is going to look like Frankenstein. Maybe you're going to end up doing things you don't like. But it's like, people are paying you money for this. <laughs> you know? Like Yeah. And the other path is like, well, you kind of lick your finger and stick it in the air and like see which way the wind is blowing. You're like, oh, I'll just go do this different thing. Like, do you need, yeah. like, do you need like hard data? Because I know like, I think the biggest change you're talking about is moving from like Summit version two to Summit version mm-hmm. three. And I saw yeah. a graph that you tweeted about it where you are like, We burned the boats. (laughs) And so for like two (laughs) months on this graph, like the number of customers and subscribers you have was going down after going up consistently for years, it was going down because you made this change. And then after that, it started skyrocketing and growing at a pace that it hadn't grown beforehand. And so you had a lot of conviction to make this huge change to your product, but like it had to be scary saying like, screw what we're doing, screw our earlier customers and what they wanted. Like we're not doing this anymore. And like, I don't, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to figure out is like, how do you have the conviction to do that? Like, What made you so certain that the path you picked was the best one, even though it wasn't directly what people were necessarily
1: asking you to do? We had 12 months of history. And I would say with the the product that we were about to burn down, it wasn't quite 12 months. It was more like six months, seven months with the product before we made that decision and then another five months of building the new thing. So by the time we canceled all those subscriptions and, and essentially gently fired those customers, we had been in market with it for a year. If you know what you're looking for, right? If you know what success looks like, like success to me was steady growth, you know, three, four, five, six months of growth and and modest churn. We weren't seeing that in the numbers. And you, at some point you're like, okay, it happened once. Well, let me change, like make a little change. Like Second time, you know, oh, we had a month of growth, two months of growth, and then we we shrink again. You're like, okay, like, let me let me change another thing. But like the third time it happens where, okay, this product, this business doesn't deliver the kind of growth that you've defined as success. And it's like, okay, we took the car around the track, it didn't perform, we, t- we tweaked some things, took around again, tweaked some things, took around again, it's like, you know, Use your analogy, like by the time something that you built doesn't deliver the outcome or results you want, how many times do you need to do that before you go, okay, this thing, we need to scrap everything but the chassis, right? (laughs) Like something, like we're gonna keep whatever we like and whatever's working, but we can't get there from here. Like there's, this is never going to perform the way we want it to, like, but we believe we know what we want it to. And one thing that we experience, and. I feel like a lot more companies or startups should consider this. We were getting all of our best customers in that previous version of the product, they were all asking us for different things, for for flexibility, essentially. They're all asking us for different things. So I wish I could do this, I wish I could do that. And the common thread was, okay, whatever this new thing is that we build, we have to just go all in on flexibility. Like it needs to be the most flexible thing That we've ever built way more flexible than the last versions by a whole level of abstraction Hmm. and so now we went back into this design room with just the chassis four (laughs) wheels and like this thing needs to do x and that's so that's such a relief when you're like okay we now know that the market wants flexibility what's the most flexible thing we can possibly deliver in six months that's the conf that's where the confidence comes from and then the other part is going you know what if this fails this is the game we're playing. Like we're in this thing to get a big outcome for me, for our investors, for our stakeholders. We're not interested in a small lifestyle business, if you will, I know that's a loaded word, but knowing that success looks like this, that we're not achieving success, and then going into design the design room with 12 months of consistent feedback, it's almost not a hard, it's, it, it, it's not even a scary decision at that point.
0: It makes sense. I think like the thing that I'm hearing is that like, you had a very concrete sort of objectives in mind where you could say, like, we are on track or we are not on track. And I think with a lot right. of founders, it's kind of like, if you don't know where you're going or where you want to go, it can be hard to make these decisions. It's like, well, we're making some money, and should I cut ties with this right. and move on? But if you're like, no, we're trying to be a huge company, and it doesn't matter if we have a little bit of traction, Like, that's not going to get us where we need to go. So it makes it much easier to be like, this current trajectory is a failure, Sucks to give up what we have, sucks to give up the customers that we have, but we can do that and rest easy because we know it's objectively not working. And you have to have some sort of like North Star to know that.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, we knew we couldn't get there going down the path we were. Um, The growth path down the path we were going was going to be very difficult. And it was going to be a very different kind of business than we wanted to build. So it failed for all those reasons, but we had learned so much. And it was good for that. Like it, it learned a lot. So we doubled down. Uh, we hired a full-time front-end developer uh, on contract basis. Rebuilt the entire front end. I rebuilt kind of the middle layers, if you will, the engine. And we took it to market in July, and it's it's what we hoped for. <laughs> it has a good ending. Um, yeah, the, I'm looking at your graph, and like the sort of like
0: graph of your subscribers is like the first like I don't know like eight or nine months. It was kind of flat, pretty low. And the next twelve mm-hmm. months, it was like a plateau. It was like you kind of shot up, but then kind of stayed kind of levelish for a while. And then you yeah. see P three, and it's like a mountain, just like yeah. shooting up <laughs> into the sky. It's like okay, that's growth. Like that's completely different. And I've been yeah. stuck in this this trap where it's like you keep doing things and you plateau. And then, you know, you go up a little yeah. bit, but then you stay straight. You're not like sort of unlocking consistent growth. Specifically, what was it that you changed? I mean, you just added flexibility, and then. <laughs> people started recommending the product to each other, it started churning less, like what enabled you to Mm -hmm. grow so much more after this change?
1: So we realized that we had been trying to, the initial, the first version was, we're gonna create a financial model that everyone's gonna use. And you put in your numbers and you click the button and here's the answers. The least flexible possible thing. Yeah, the least flexible thing. I called it like a vending machine for a financial model and it only serves one kind. It's like everybody puts in right. the same coins and gets the same thing. Maybe you have like five choices. Um, but the second version was like, okay, you want more flexibility? And I was talking to Corey Haynes, great example. He was at Bear Metrics at the time. And he's like, Matt, I've got like multiple marketing channels. I, I don't. Your model only has one, like I want another. Mm-hmm. So the second version, we're like, cool, Corey, like now you can add a second marketing channel. So it was like- it was a like very
0: specific complaint.
1: <clears throat> yeah. So it's very specific complaints. Like, okay, we had the first version and then the like V1 and a half where he could add his extra thing in there. V2 was like, okay, never It's like, you know what? People might have one or more of all of these things. Let's like, let them basically configure the heck out of this thing. But we were still constraining them and saying like, but you can only use the building blocks that are on the table, like there's there's 40 building blocks and you can configure them however you want. So suddenly like the number of financial models that people could build was, was multiplicatively more. It was like thousands more, maybe tens of thousands more. But then people would still come to us and go, hey, this is cool, but I run an e-commerce business and I've got cogs attached to every sale and actually those costs are going down. So is there any way to model that? And we're like, what is going on? <laughs> like, we're either going to have to build like super bloatware. It's going to end up looking like, you know, some Microsoft product with like 50 downs and buttons. And like, you know, how can we possibly please the person who wants like 25 fields on their model and the person who's like, I just have, I just have one number, you know? And so the only thing more flexible than, so we started with a form and then we went to a form of forms. That was the second version the third version was like, what's more flexible than a form of forms? It's like, well, a language would be more flexible than a form of forms because a language, if you think about it, is kind of the ability for me and you on the fly to just create these structures out of nothing. Like, you can have a sentence that's really long and run on and has seven commas right, in it. Right, right. Or you could be like Ernest Hemingway. <laughs>
0: If I want to sit down and talk to somebody about their financial modeling, they can just describe it to me using the English language yeah. easily.
1: Exactly, exactly, and just but let in software them t- it's hard. In software, it's very hard. And if it turns out that every single time somebody says "but," I also have this, like there's another feature you have to build, you're DOA, man. Like you're never going to satisfy the demand. And here's what we realized: Excel's the incumbent in this space. The reason it works is they it's infinitely flexible. It's a language, but it's even wor- it's actually not one language. It's more like a, a set of languages and everybody has their own dialect. Like mm. you ever come into somebody's spreadsheet, like they are speaking their own <laughs> language, even though it looks the same, uses the same alphabet, but like it's not the same language. Um, we realized that, wow, if we don't give people flexibility, this market, and I think this is hopefully a takeaway for others. Some markets, there's this inelasticity. What I mean is, let's say you build three features. If you build three features for a financial model, you get, like, one credit, okay? If you build 30 features, you get two credits. (laughs) If you build a 1,000 features, you get, like, 90 credits, okay? So what we realized was, like, wow, okay, we want a ton of credit for this thing. We want to capture as much value as possible, but the burden that we're – like, the the mountain of features we're going to have to build is Mm -hmm. infinite. Crazy. Crazy, it's impossible. So the only way to possibly scale this mountain is to give people a language and we're gonna, strategic trade off here. Hey Cortland, good news, you have all the flexibility you could possibly ever want. The only catch is you have to learn a slightly new language to express those ideas, right? You're like, okay, like I might be willing to try that because you're basically saying that you're no longer going to restrict my expression I can express anything I want to. But the trade-off is I got to learn something new, which that's not fun. But could you make it fun? (laughs) And so that's what we did. We released a canvas with a language, super flexible. And now we hardly get any feature requests. Like we get feature requests, but they're not the kind we used to get. It's never like, hey, can you add this feature? It's like, can you make it faster? Can you make it, can I like, is there an API? Like they want, like the whole product to expand but the core product they have like really nothing to say other than hey i want to keep learning it like i want to get more fluent in yeah. it
0: so it's like your product can and solve their problem and they just want you to solve it better faster cooler but they're not like hey that's this doesn't right. solve. this
1: doesn't let me solve my problem like it does that's <laughs> right <make> slicker. <laughs> yeah you make it faster and i'm like that's fantastic because there's no, there's no diminishing returns on speed, right? We can just keep making it faster. And all those complaints about the inflexibility went away and people are adopting it and they're leaving spreadsheets for this kind of exercise because we're 95% flexible. (laughs) So (laughs) you'll never be as flexible as like an Excel sheet where it's like, you can do anything as much as you want. Like we can't do that and still be good software um, for what we're trying to do. But we were able to overcome that flexibility objection, and now we have the subscriptions to prove it.
0: That's crazy. It's pretty rare that I have someone on the podcast where I talk to them and like the actual problem that they're facing is their product just wasn't the right product or it wasn't good enough. You know, people pivot a lot, and then, but it's like usually like a distribution. I wasn't selling. I wasn't talking to customers, et cetera, et cetera. But it's cool mm-hmm. to hear. They're like, no, no, no. You like Again, you dug this really deep hole. You went really deep and to financial modeling and talking to your customers. And you learned a lot of lessons that you could not have learned if you hadn't actually started building and selling the thing and had customers using it. And then you came back out of that with like this unique insight. And unlike the the storm pollster, it was kind of like, let's pick a crazy niche. (laughs) It was almost kind of like the opposite. It was like for this particular segment, Mm -hmm. we need to go super broad and flexible. Otherwise, it's not going to work because everyone has their own
1: idiosyncrasies. That's right. Yeah, we ended up going super deep. So that lesson was carried over. But we went completely horizontal and and flexible. And what we've also learned in the process is that we're not really just about financial models anymore. So we've really developed a language that people can use to build models and when I talk to companies, they've got onboarding models, they've got sales models, marketing right. models, pipe uh, you know pipelines and offboarding, all these, you know, my right. AWS spend model. Like models are kind of everywhere. And we had this blinder vision of the CFO suite, you know, the financial model, like the P&L that, you know, the, the tabula rasa, that the thing and we're like, wait a minute. No, like actually Cortland makes most of his decisions with models that he builds either in a notebook or in like a really tiny little G sheet that he might be embarrassed to share <laughs> with, <laughs> with me if I asked him to look at it. Cause you're like, ah, this isn't, this isn't like professional, whatever. Um, so we ended up reaching a whole new audience okay so i've got so many more questions i want to ask you but
0: so it's already <laughs> going long so i'm going to try something i almost never do on the show which is like a rapid fire section
1: Ooh, okay
0: the challenge is these aren't actually rapid fire questions they're not intended to be answered rapidly so i will attempt <laughs> <laughs> uh okay first thing uh in researching summit your homepage is, is like crazy simple I and mean, your website's basically just one page Uh, Why is that? Why is it not more extensive? I want to dive into the product and learn more about it. Why keep it so simple?
1: Because the risk to our business was will people keep using the product, not can we get people to sign up for the product? So we really have focused on testing usage and engagement as opposed to the homepage. Um, We're willing to lose homepage visitors for now, knowing that if we can just get the people that try it to stay then we can invest in the homepage, right? With confidence, <laughs> with confidence. makes
0: sense. There's like this funnel yeah. of you know acquisition, getting people to your website, converting them to customers, and then retaining them. And if you don't have the retention part at the end, then the other yeah. parts don't matter because you got a leaky bucket.
1: That's right. Makes perfect sense.
0: Uh, number two, you don't share revenue numbers with
1: Summit. Mm. Why not? That's a good one. I become. Yeah, I guess I'm just private about... I've always been that way. Even with Storm Pulse, I always shared things years in hindsight, you know, in terms of of financial numbers. Uh, Pretty private with those. I do share them with the team and we share them internally. But I think revenue numbers are so... They're so easy to misinterpret. Like, I'm much more interested in the inputs to businesses than like the output. And I don't want somebody to judge Summit just based on... This like one number, oh, this is your number you are today. It's like, again, especially being so bottoms of the funnel focused. It's really, I'm proud of our churn, you know, having negative churn, like I'm proud of, you know, how much people use the product. Like, so I'm sharing those numbers actually a lot revenue. Maybe we'll get to, because we'll get to the point where I'm like proud of that, but we're so small right now that it's, it's kind of meaningless. It's, um, it's not really the barometer that we're using to measure our progress. It's about to change.
0: And and for listeners who don't know, churn is when people basically who are paying for your product stop paying for it or start paying less. Negative churn is when your existing customers, Mm. like the amount of money you're making from your existing customers every month, eclipses the amount of money you're losing from people who are churning. And so essentially, like it's kind of a pretty sweet place to be. It's a good thing to brag about. Yeah, (laughs) It's not easy to get there. That's the takeaway. Yeah. Um, You are with Summit trying to build a really big company. Uh, you're trying to like, you know, it's not good enough for you to be sort of growing slowly. You have to be growing massively. Why is that? Why set your sights that high? What's the point?
1: Yeah, I think the more people that use the thing that I make, the happier I am. Like that's pretty deep within me. I, I respect the artists and the folks that could just somehow make something. And then like they sell it to one client and it's like in a house somewhere in Palm Beach. And, like five people see it every year. I just can't. I don't know how to, I, I don't know how to do that. Doesn't motivate me enough to be perfectly honest. So I love when people use what I've made. I love knowing that they're enjoying it. And so there's like a very deep intrinsic motivation in me for my creations to be used by a lot of people. Um, that just brings me joy, brings me a lot more satisfaction. The other, you combine that with the fact that, you know, spreadsheets have about a billion installs if not regular users (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and having built something very horizontal it just doesn't make sense to either a try to charge a lot so that we could have you know a thousand customers and still be really big um or b just keep it small for the sake of of being small i think the applicability is is there so it's a kind of combination of two um exciting motivations you know and i brought on investors knowing that i'm personally aligned with that
0: right Brings me to our next question. Uh, You've done a lot of like bootstrapping, raising money, you know, uh, taking out sort of loans from your co-founders or whatever the (laughs) situation was. Uh, What about for someone who doesn't have this experience, like a brand new Mm. indie hacker who's trying to figure out how to navigate the fundraising sort of landscape, whether or not they should bootstrap? What is something, I guess what would be your advice to somebody in that situation regarding how to think about fundraising?
1: Yeah. um, First of all, find people who are very good at it and talk to them. I think that might require going outside of your current network or I'm not gonna say bubble, but I'll mention it (laughs) as a side note. Like it could be a bubble, um, put yourself out there and meet people. So like when I started fundraising, I started listening to a few people, but like a lot of my conversations with people who had very little experience themselves and still to this day, I think that investors and people that raise money, the quality of their experience and their feedback, it's varies. Just orders and orders of magnitude. So, you know, the best thing you can do is find people with experience doing it and go get your advice from them and then balance it out, you know, maybe a constellation of people. But like the worst thing you can do is just turn to a few people around you and say like, hey, what should I do? Because you're just going to get advice from people who look at, they, they literally look at money differently than other people. Like if you get advice from somebody who sees money as a resource to hold on to, And to deploy it very carefully, you know, that you're going to get very different advice than somebody who says, you know what, you know, what's constraining the world is like enough good ideas. Like we're, we're, we're constrained on ideas. There's tons of capital out there, right? Like you're going to get very different feedback. So if you want to raise money, go talk to people who do it and have done it professionally and maybe a few people that you respect, um, uh, that's that's the best thing I think you could do because I can't possibly point you down a correct path in 60 seconds, but, you know, put yourself out there and find people who can.
0: Last question. You mentioned earlier about a talk that basically changed perspective back in 2004. Are there any other talks, books, blog posts, resources, things you've read or come across that have sort of changed how you see business that other indie hackers might benefit from?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are, there's too many to mention, but I'll, I'll just, recency bias, I'll just reach for something that I c- came back to recently. Jason Cohen, his Richard King post, most people's takeaway in that post is this dilemma of, should I stay independent or should I sell out? That's all good. The S-curve chart that's buried in that post that shows you know what money does to you as a person, I think is something that if you can internalize that it will change your perspective on so much. It will help you calibrate your goals because what he basically shows is the the reward that you get, like the value of money is different. So yes, the more money you have, the more valuable it is in theory, but I think most of us are just trying to improve our lives and our lifestyles with money. And I just love how he painted that picture, probably took him like 30 minutes in paint, but he did the world service. And if you can internalize that S-curve, it can really help you calibrate your goals and expectations of like, what do I want out of this business? What do I want out of my next business? And just place yourself on that chart. I was talking to my wife the other day, we went out to lunch and I was just like, you know, I <laughs> I uh, was asked, I was at a, I was at a gym in 2000, and like I wanna say uh, six. And some person randomly asked me, because they knew I was into tech. Maybe I had like an early smartphone or something. Like, hey, who would you invest in? I'm like, oh, man, you know, I would invest in Amazon, Apple. And like Tesla was like, somehow Tesla was either known or about to go, something like that. I like made these picks. Mm -hmm. And like, I did. I actually bought like what I could at the time in each of those in in Tesla, actually shortly after they went public. And the most depressing thing in the world, and I'm going to come back to this chart was it made like no difference to my life whatsoever <laughs> because <laughs> because I, I had like no money to invest at the time. Like it didn't move me up that chart, you know, like I was right, but I was invested in the wrong thing. And what the take of the lesson was like, you got to concentrate your bets if you want to move up that chart. Taking the $150 or $300 I had, <laughs> you know, for my piggy bank and buying a share of Tesla, like... That wasn't a concentrated bet. Like it was, I was right, I was right, but I wasn't concentrated enough. And so even though it's riskier, concentrate your efforts, focus on something that if it pays off can actually move you and then you can diversify. So like concentrate to get wealthy, diversify to stay wealthy. Makes sense. Is the other takeaway from that chart. And I think most founders are sort of doing that by concentrating their bets on themselves. Like, okay, if
0: I start a company yeah. from zero, like that is the highest potential upside because I'm in on the absolute ground floor. Assuming it yeah. succeeds, I, the multiplier is humongous.
1: I think that's I think that's right. And and the good news is these days, at least 2021, if you fall off that wagon, like you can get a job pretty easily. So yeah. don't be scared.
0: Yeah. <laughs> my biggest takeaway from that chart, I remember, it's something I've thought about in my own life too, is it's kind of like a binary thing where like, all the way along that chart that he drew, there's like, you can make more money, you can make less money, but there's a point where you cross the line and you get into like personal financial freedom. And that is by far the biggest thing. Like the difference between being not free and free is way bigger than the difference between being like a hundred millionaire and a hundred billionaire, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's something people don't necessarily take into account.
1: And I I think it comes into Greece. Like you can be free from this obligation. You can be free from this burden. And you know, if you zoom in on the first part of that curve, you can see those degrees, but, um, but I also think that we can become obsessed with the billions and billions and not realize like, wait a minute, <laughs> the, the outcome that my family needs is available to me today if I do this, right? So calibrate yeah. yourself. Cool.
0: All right, well, Matt, thanks for uh, staying on for so long. we a very cool episode with me. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at
1: Summit? Sure. Uh, Usesummit.com is the website. Usesummit is the Twitter handle. And of course, you can always find me tweeting way too much at Matt Wensing. All right. Thanks again, Matt. Thanks, Cortland.